Good morning, good morning. My name is Andrea Simintov, and you're listening to Pull Up a Chair on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You just make sure that that is where your computer cursor stays the entire day, because it doesn't get better than this. I am speaking with you this morning from South Africa. Um, I am visiting family, I am visiting grandchildren, and I am visiting really, truly the most wonderful community outside of Israel, of course. And I'm very excited because today is Thursday morning right here in South Africa, by the way, an hour behind when I usually do this show. So that's how much devotion goes into connecting with one another on a Thursday morning. But um, if for some reason we experience some electrical blips on today's show, the one thing we will say about Israel News Talk Radio is that we do indeed like to keep it real, and that it will mean that we are experiencing something called load shedding. That is when the surge of electricity becomes too much for the system. So I'm working here. So the show may be very, very real. You may hear people getting up and getting dressed and going to the gym, and Andrea is sitting, drinking her coffee and communicating. Um, crazy. I left Eretz Yisrael. I flew out on, I believe it was, I think it was Monday morning. The heat was already at 10 in the morning, leaving Israel. It was about 33, 34 degrees Celsius in Ben Gurion Airport. And of course, the rest of the day, and I still think it's hovering around the 36, 37 degree. Well, if you want to have meteorological uh, schizophrenia, try coming now down to South Africa, because in South Africa, we are experiencing freezing weather. We're expecting rainstorms, sleet, snow. It actually snowed here last week. If you could imagine such a thing, and it's very, it's kind of exciting to be part of it. This Thursday night, this Thursday night, a Wednesday night, I apologize, all around the world, after thousands and thousands of years, we still will sit in our synagogues or in our homes, and we will read the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations, Echa. Any of you speaking Hebrew know how often when something is confusing, we say to one another, Ech, Ech, how did it happen? How is it? The word Echa, the Ech of Echa is the ultimate. How? How did it happen? The three weeks up to and including Tisha B'Av, in a nutshell, if I can describe it, the prophet Yermiahu, Jeremiah in English, he spent years warning the people, warning us that they need to repent and stop insisting that the temple would protect them. To his great chagrin, to his great disappointment, the Jews honored the temple more in a spectacle 
a tourist spot. Then in its spirit. How much, how much do we celebrate edifices, edifices instead of the meaning behind them? The Jews ignored Yirmiyahu. Ignored him? They imprisoned him. And to his unbearable agony, he was right. The temple was destroyed. The people ravaged. The nation dispersed, i.e. the diaspora. And he was a witness. The book of Echa is timeless. Even the anti-Semitic Napoleon, when he saw Jews thousands of years sitting on the floors of their synagogues and in the courtyards and in their homes, lamenting the loss of their temple, Napoleon was known to utter, these people will never be destroyed. If they are still bemoaning something that occurred thousands of years ago, they are indestructible. But at what price? Our continued existence. Echa was composed at the end of that first temple era. And Chazal, the sages of the Midrash, they find it all full of allusions to the destruction of the second temple, which would happen over 500 years later. Jewish history is a continuum. Just as we live by the Torah that was given over 33 centuries ago, we are molded by our experiences of our forefathers and the historical epochs that they created. I encourage you, anybody who has never truly observed Tisha B'Av, the nine days began, what day is it? It's it's Thursday, Wednesday, I think Tuesday night, we stopped eating our meat. We're eating only dairy, only vegetables. No food of a celebratory nature. There's no listening to music. We can smell, we can sense, we can intuit the great calamity that befell us. And even though we no longer have our temple, indeed, we feel together. Yermiahu Jeremiah weeps, and we weep with him because if we are thoughtful, if we are perceptive, we see that all of Jewish history lies within the pages of Echa and the intonement of its poignant message. This is the challenge of Tisha B'Av. It's not just a day of tears. It's a day of challenge. It's a day of hope. The day after Tisha B'Av is not, must not be business as usual. The book of Echa calls Tisha B'Av a day of Jewish rendezvous with Hashem. It actually has elements of a festival. 
rendezvous with God? A festival? On a day of destruction and suffering? Yes! Because Tisha B'Av proves that Hashem is not indifferent to Jewish conduct. We matter. And since we do, we know he awaits. He is a loving father that wants his child home. Oh, there will be a third temple. And it will be an eternal one. The sages say that the Moshiach, the Messiah, will be born on Tisha B'Av. Together, friends, let's read Echa on Wednesday night with that prayerful hope that he has already been born. And this day, next year, will be a day of joy. We say together, bring us back to you, Hashem, and we shall return. Renew our days as of old. Speaking with you today, we have so much to cover. You know, as I flew here, as I flew here to um, South Africa, um, I was on the plane and I was sitting with different people different wonderful people on the flame. Let me first say different interesting people from Israel to Addis Ababa. And I remember sitting next to a woman, um, I hope she's listening in, from Kfar Saba, a lovely woman named Shiri. And she was on my, she was sitting next to me and she was on her way doing what Jews do. She was on her way to visit, I believe it was Tanzania, I believe she was going to Nairobi and she was with a group and they were going to bring assistance and health and education to um, villages that really are very, very cut off. And at first she told me, I remember I had this kind of um, inner laugh. She said, well, she's going to teach yoga. She's apparently a very renowned and very well-known yoga teacher. And I thought to myself, if people don't have food, why do they need yoga? And part of me was actually chuckling. And as the days pass, I feel forgiveness in my heart because she's right. We must do what we can do. We must do what God wants of us. We're gifted with talents. And there is nothing more Jewish there is nothing more innately Yiddish than to discover what we were born for, what we can do, and um, and bring bring light to the world, light to the nation. So, I apologize in my heart. I hope that Shiri is listening in this morning and is truly with us. Okay, I'm waiting to see here. Hi. 
Hi, this is Betsy Penn from Phoenix, Arizona, and I love Israel News Talk Radio for the interesting interviews, accurate information, spiritual guidance, political insight, humor, hey, y'all. and passion. I'm Chelsea, and I was born and raised in Cajun country in the heartland of Louisiana. Listening to Israel News Talk Radio has broadened my horizons way past the rice fields. Hi, this is Gordon from Southern Indiana. I'm listening to IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Hello, this is Hank Poach from the Netherlands. We love Israel, and we love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. Andrea Simintov, pull up a chair, IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Again, this is sort of an experiment. Let's think about that we're camping out together. This show today is taking place from Johannesburg. Um, and it is, if we have any problems in connect, connectivity, connection, uh, the show goes out, the sound goes high, the sound goes low. It is definitely not Israel News Talk Radio, which is a very polished operation, I must tell you, we are, um, the electricity does occasionally go out here, and we hope that the um, internet pisses itself on for just a bit. So I forgot to give our Rambaru moment, it's so exciting, we have listening in today, this morning, how early it is here, it's 6.20 in the morning, it is so early, but anyway, we have the U.S. listening in. Uh, all over the U.S. I hope New York is with us and California is with us. Of course, good morning, South Africa. I hope you have your heaters on or at least a lot of good sweatshirts. Canada is with us. Indonesia uh, is listening in this morning. Eretz Israel and Nepal. And if anybody else comes in, I hope I'll be able to see it and I will be able to tell you. Apparently, I don't have my notes in front of me. I have to tell you, so much holiness went into today's show. I don't have a printer where I am. I usually print out my notes and we prep it. And I didn't. And last night, um, I prepared the show and I typed it all and I sent it to a friend of a friend of a friend and someone who I do not know, um, someone who has never listened to the show, someone who was not born into the tribe of Jews, printed the show for me. And it was very exciting. And it came last night at 10 o'clock. All my notes wrapped in very pretty South African uh, professionalism. So, all right. We have so much to talk about today. So let's see. We're not going to, we have a lot of, we're going to really work today on speaking only holiness because the temple was destroyed, was destroyed, brought down because of our baseness, because of who we are at our worst. And if anything, as we sit immersed 
in these nine days, these nine days, which have the potential to change the world. Imagine, not to be just a small number, to just be a nothing, to just be nothing, a mini cog in a wheel. It does not matter. The prophet Yirmiyahu knew we do matter. This week, this Shabbos, and I'm very excited because, please God, I intend to attend synagogue in a lovely shul, synagogue near to where I'm staying, the Sandton Shul. I prayed there once uh, several months ago, loved it. And this time, really, I had to, because of the tentacles of anti-Semitism that is just all over the world, it was very sad and yet very beautiful. I had to fill out a visitor's form to let them know that I would be davening. So instead of the last way of davening is to prayer. So instead of the last time I went in full anonymity, this time I'm making this big announcement that I'm coming and I'm coming to synagogue and really looking forward to it. The Torah lectures that I experienced there were just beautiful. And my goodness, they make a most elaborate kiddush I'm on a diet. I hope I can imagine. I hope I can man manage to stay um, relatively uh, in control when I visit the Santin Shul. So this week in synagogues, we will be reading the Torah portion of Devarim. And there's a saying, and I, I very frequently quote Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev. This Shabbos, Shabbos Devarim, it's, um, we always read this. We're reading it the Shabbos before Tisha B'Av, and it's called Shabbat Chazon. We read this HaTorah. It's a day when we're presented. We're presented with a vision of the third temple. Even though we see it from a great, a great distance, the word for vision, Chazon, indicates vision from a distance. And it leads us to understand this connection between the vision of the Haftorah and the, 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 the Torah portion of Devarim, which are always read together on the Shabbos preceding the ninth of Av. The reason I'm really kind of hanging out here today, friends, is because I pray that you are more enlightened than I was when I started to become spiritually connected. I remember thinking that Tisha B'Av, there's no way out. Clearly, we're in the muck and mire of our human filth. Nothing could be less Jewish. There are other faiths who believe that we are born in sin, that we can never be other than a different form of animal, Oh no, oh no, we are born in holiness. We are born B'Tselem Elohim in his image. Nothing is as close to God as us. And the ninth of Av, indeed, it's a wake-up call. It reminds us of punishment. But no loving parent wants us to stay there. With this portion, this Torah portion, Devarim, begins the second Torah. Moshe's cap, you know, 
encapsulation of the Torah, the whole book of Devorim. It's different from the other four books. Wise Moses is addressing the generation who were about to enter the Holy Land. They were different. They needed counsel in a way that the previous generation didn't. You know, the people who traveled in the wilderness, they possessed an immediate knowledge of, what word can I use? The divine, the divine. They had seen Hashem on Sinai. But the succeeding generation, closer to us, we're already touched by responsibilities in the physical world. We lost that immediacy in the midbar as we were leaving. They heard God, but they didn't see him. They were dressed in the words, and now Israel, listen, Shema. There's a difference between seeing and hearing. What's the difference? Someone who witnesses an event is unshakable. He's seen it with his own eyes. But one who hears about an event, he could in time actually entertain doubts. Hearing does not confer certainty. That's why the generation who were to enter Eretz Israel, who had heard God but did not see God, they had to be commanded about self-sacrifice and the like. A warning? To have warned Israel, those who had seen God, seen his miracles, it would have been a superfluous warning. In one way, a warning, um, you know, to reach something that was unattained by their father, who was told in Devarim, you have not as yet come to rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God has given you. Shiloh, Yerushalayim, it was reached only later by that later generation. But here's the crux. Only by descending into material concerns, the translation of God's will into practical action, can that fulfillment be released, rele reached of the rest, quote, the rest and the inheritance of Eretz Israel. In short, Devarim, this Torah portion, tells us of the paradox that through descent comes true uplifting. What could be more Tisha B'Av than that? The highest achievements of the spirits are won in earthly and not heavenly realms. And this is also the message of the vision. Even though this Haftorah is read in the nine days of mourning for the loss of the temples, nevertheless, the resulting exile, the diaspora, the galut, only through that will come the true redemption. The vision that we glimpse in the very moment of our loss this is, this is what gives us hope. This is what gives us the truth. So you see, we talk so often, we talk so often about, I talk so often about, you know, we must come home, we must come back. Um, why are you not living in Israel? My question still does remain. 
and yet, and yet, ah, and yet, Galut serves a purpose. All of us, let's plan to come home, but understand, pick up your copies of Echa. If you have never, ever observed Tisha B'Av, I encourage you, Pick up a copy of Echa, find a synagogue, or sit at home. You must learn the words, intuit it, take it into your soul. Certainly as a woman, the idea of what happened to us and our babies and our children and the lowest we could possibly reach and to think that God did redeem us. Can't be more loved than that. Andrea Simmentals, see you on the other side. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from you Israel. You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Okie doke. Okie doke. We are back. Andrea Semenchov, pull up a chair, IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Looking at all these pages that this holy person typed out for me last night. So this is, of course, obviously, can you hear the pages? We're so on it. Okay. Um, oh, my gosh. The sun is rising over Johannesburg. I will have to put a picture up on the Israel News Talk Radio site so you will get to see this. Um Interesting. You know, we didn't do anything, any of our secular studies, because it's such an important week, such an important time. I don't want to miss a moment. However, I must tell you, um, maybe we'll talk next time. Let's see how the week pans out. We'll talk about President Herzog's visit to the United States and addressing, I believe, a joint session of Congress. And I don't know what to do with it. You know, I'm so used to choose non-Jews, they hate us, they hate us, they hate us. He received a standing ovation. He uh, <laughs> he, was, he was really the darling, you know. There's a saying for those who are opposed to Prime Minister um, Benjamin Netanyahu, they don't care who they vote for, they write not, just not, just not Bibi. That's the whole campaign, the not Bibi campaign. But um, I just think they gave him a standing ovation because it wasn't Benjamin Netanyahu. But it was very, very impressive. And as a Jew who's always looking for anti-Semites under, you know, under every rock, I found it fascinating. So before we get into, I just wanted to throw this past. I was sent an article. Tell me what you think about it. I forgot to say, if you have any thoughts, uh, write to me, Andrea at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Looking forward to hearing from you. I do hear from you. Um, apparently, Yeshiva University eminent, eminent um, center of Jewish Jewish higher education for, I think, well over 100 years. Anyway, Hebrew University, uh, Jew, uh, Israel, Yeshiva University just launched 
a Jewish studies program for Christian students. And um, according to this headline, the innovative initiative from Yeshiva University draws from the increasing interest of Christians in understanding the Jewish origins of their faith. It's not just an academic program, but it aims to foster deeper interfaith understanding and dialogue. I think we're going to talk a little bit more about this in um in later days but i found it very very interesting and the question is why do you know why do christians want to study jewish studies at yeshiva university and the article addresses it i'll send you the article uh the one that came to me write to me andrea at israelnewstalkradio.com very curious about your thoughts and i guess the next week that we see i'll be here next week also in south africa but i don't believe i'll be doing a show on thursday morning because it will indeed be tish above but maybe we'll find a way to meet again but uh i'll come back with more we'll do more of that stuff but we have too much to talk about this holy week okay pashas devarim the torah portion and again we're going to flip back tish above devarim reaching for that higher heavenly brass ring. Um, each week I try to do something called what I call from the Torah to your table. And um, I know that this week at my Shabbos table, one of the things that I'm going to bring up to discuss is how Moshe, um, Moses, he recalls in his speech to the nation, he recalls how the task of governing this nation of Israel had really grown beyond his powers. Um, you know, how many more times can we be called a, stick ne- a stiff-necked people? So according to um, Rav Yosef Yozel Maharovitz, the chapter also teaches us, this portion, this Torah portion of Devarim, that one who shuns his responsibilities to his fellow Jews thinking it's going to be easier if he doesn't get involved with communal affairs. You know, says to himself, how can I bear the burdens? I'm too small for this. It's really too heavy. People greater than me, blah, blah, blah. He's going to find that in the long run, he's going to suffer more from that. For, among other reasons, among other reasons, he's going to be ostracized by other members of his community. And in fact, the opening verse of Megillah Echa, the book of Echa, it says, how did she dwell alone? And so perhaps we can discuss this commentary at our Shabbos tables. Very curious to know your thoughts. So as I alluded to at the beginning, you know, Moshe's long and his beautiful Let's say that he was, it was, uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine calls it the valedictory, the valedictory address. So that's how we start the, the Torah portion. It's an intensely personal part of the Torah because it's almost void of the lofty, um, let's say spiritually shrouded emotions but Moshe is at his most human. His frustrations with the people who are destined with holiness, charged with holiness, and seemingly always running away from the purpose of their births. 
are very clearly apparent in his words. He cries, Moshe cries in this Torah portion. It's the forerunner. In the words of the Midrash, of the ultimate Echa, which causes us later to weep and mourn on Tisha B'Av. You know, it's not only the incredible anxiety and stress of leadership that agonizes our Moshe, although it certainly is a part of his burden. It's that relentless, that non-stop carping and lack of hakoras atov, that appreciation, no gratitude on the part of Israel towards our abundant blessings and our unique relationship with God that just gives Moshe this human sense of brooding, almost this, this constant bleak attitude for what was it all. He's going to state later in the book, I know that after my death in the future, you will stray from the path of Torah and worship strange gods. Terrible things will then befall you until the day final redemption arrives. Oh my, our Moshe, the role we played know the role we play. Rabbi Wine further points out that there's an anguish to being a parent who sees the errors of their child's decisions, how their children pursue certain matters, certain passions, and the parent is incapable of stopping the downfall, the eventual disaster. This valedictory address of Moshe is not just a past event, but he's reminding. If you could remind of the future, that is what he is doing. He is reminding us of our future weaknesses throughout our past, present, and future. Echa, how can it be? Oh, does the word not apply today? He zeroes in, he homes in on the two main faults of that inherent Jewish personality. Weakness. Always looking. Looking outside of the bracha, the blessings that have been bestowed upon us. Ingratitude and a lack of self-worth. This matter of ingratitude, oh my gosh, it seems to be the ongoing theme of the Torah. The complaints, the complaints about the manna, the man, you know, the food that fell from heaven. The water, it wasn't enough. It was too bitter. The land of Israel. Even the exodus from Egypt, we were imprisoned. Not just our bodies, our soul, our entire futures were imprisoned in Egypt. And we wouldn't stop carping about it. The entire 40-year miraculous 
sojourn through the sands of the Sinai. One long litany of complaint, carping, bitching, ingratitude. The rabbis define wealth. What is wealth? Wealth is being satisfied. I remember when I first came to Torah observance, I didn't understand. My late father-in-law used to always bless me with Osher. Osher, you should have Osher. And I would say, what is he blessing me with all this wealth? It seems so materialistic. I didn't get it. He was blessing me with the most inherently Jewish blessing, contentment with my lot. And yet there are relatively few wealthy people in our world. Even as I digress from script, I think to myself, wait, together we're listening to this. We have that ability to really acquire, perhaps for so many, the unattainable. Ingratitude, it affects family relations, business ventures, our psychological well-being. We're not even talking about the spiritual, a failing in society and lacking self-worth, very prevalent among Jews, very in a world where other faiths have hundreds of millions of adherents, Judaism is the smallest of all faiths, number-wise. I must tell you, I was on the plane flying from Addis Ababa, that's in Ethiopia, to Johannesburg. And I looked around me. It was a strange flight. It was an odd hour of the flight. There literally was almost no layover between the Tel Aviv flight and my flight to get on to Johannesburg. And when I got on the plane, it became apparent to me that I may have been one of the only, if not the only Jew on the plane. And the plane was, um, there were many South Africans, but flying to Johannesburg, it really, Ethiopia is a hub. It's connecting flights. The plane was filled with Muslims from every branch of Islam. Um, I'm not such an expert. I should by now know more. And I was sitting next to um, a Muslim man and his wife. She was fully covered head to toe, including a face veil. And as we were sitting there, we, we really didn't converse, but I became very aware of the similarities. The plane was theirs. Everybody, they were chatting over the aisles to other people. And I, feeling as though I were the only Jew on the plane, felt very, very isolated. And yet I and my seatmates, we were both eating food out of our own bags because I didn't know if they would have food for me on the flight. I had ordered kosher food too late, and I guess that they perhaps didn't trust with food on the flight. Um, I was praying. They were praying. But when I think about the self-worth and our being the smallest of all faith, you can only imagine how I felt. And the stewardess came walking down the aisle, 
and shouted in a voice that I have never heard an airline host or hostess use, screaming, kosher meal? Who ordered the kosher meal? <laughs> and as my hand rose up, I felt that thousand-year Jewish insecurity instead of the pride. So everything does touch home. I just thought I'd share that with you. But anyway, I digress. Moshe taught us. What does he teach us? He teaches us in this book of the Torah that it would be the case always, always that we will be the smallest of all nations. We'll always be the only ones ordering kosher food on the flight. But that inner strength of the Jew always lies in our deeply held conviction of being holy, being special, being chosen by Hashem for an eternal mission in this world. Just as I say from our Torah to our table this Shabbos, it is not for us to say this job, the Jewish mission in the world, has nothing to do with me. Let me leave it to others. Don't we recall the words of Mordechai to Esther when she said, I cannot approach the king. I cannot save the Jewish people. I cannot do this. It is too big for me. And Mordechai answers her and he says, oh, God's will will happen. God's will will be executed. The question remains, what role will you play in the redemption of our people? In recent times, believing that we're not up to the challenge or we're not included in the team, it's been eroded. Our feelings of obligation and even just mattering has been dissipated by secularization. Ignorance of our beautiful faith and of course the outside influences of a permissive environment where everything goes and there are no spiritual rules. Moshe's words must, must remain for us a rallying cry. It's a war to combat those twin evils that weaken us, endanger us, immediately threaten our survival and our progress. This is the season. This is the season, these three weeks and these nine ultimate days that press us to heed the words of our teacher, Moshe Rabbeinu. Hear the message. It's the pathway to our ultimate redemption. You know, the Talmud, and I'm not a big student of Talmud. I grew up in a time, in a generation, in a world with the outlook that women really did not study Talmud. It was the purview of men, merely giving you the facts. And now more and more I'm hearing about young women, brilliant, equipped, able, intelligent women 
who are delving into the mysteries and the chinuch, the education and the lessons of the Talmud. So I say really humbly, because it's all new to me, but I have learned that the Talmud traces the causes for the destruction of the first and second temples to the spiritual failings and the sins of the Jewish people. You know, while these assessments are... We're not going to doubt this. Um, They're observed in the popular view of the events that they're the sole and only cause of these tragedies. But it's pointed out that it should be obvious to all of us that failed assessments in the military and diplomatic situations of the time of the temple, and there was a certain foolhardy, shall we say, an arrogant bravado that were also involved in the destruction in the first and second um, uh, temple periods. And again, if we're just talking history, and the Torah is not a history book, it is a blueprint. If we hear these words, but don't take moments and reflect on our own lives and make comparisons and draw line A to example B, then we're missing the point. Jewish rulers of the times, they pursued irrational policies. Somehow these Jewish leaders, had they had this mistaken belief that no matter what, they would prevail. Heaven will overlook their mistakes. Isn't that often the rule of human history? When caution and good sense are substituted for emotion, personal calculations, I want it, therefore it must be. This was the case of our first two attempts at Jewish national sovereignty in the land of Israel. Behavior has consequence. National behavior, government policies have consequence. Yeah, we're Jews. We believe that the supernatural is always present in our human affairs. And indeed, no policies or strategic decisions should be made on the basis of mystical uh, interference with consequences of behavior and government policies. Faith in the supernatural is a basic idea in Judaism, but Judaism teaches us self-reliance wise choices in life and diplomacy and a realistic and rational outlook at the events as they unfold. Heaven helps the wise and astute. Indeed, look at the design of the Magan, the Magan David, the Jewish star. One point points up to the heavens. Jews are nothing without the involvement, the passion of heaven. But there's another point, the point that goes down to the bottom. We must have our feet on the ground. We do not have monks living in ashrams, a life of silence or monasteries, because our faith can only be practiced, can only be celebrated What matters in this world can only be brought to fruition 
when we apply it to one another, Jew and non-Jew in this world, that mighty temple, that mighty empire of Babylonia, it destroyed the first temple. It did so, we can say now, after a rash, a totally irrational decision by the Judean king to rebel against the authority of Babylonia, and he allied himself and his small, weak country with Egypt. Jeremiah opposed this. He warned the king and the people, there is folly. And none of us know what would have had, what would have been the result if the king had listened to Jeremiah and not taking up, taking up arms against Babylonia. But no one can deny that the decision of the king to rebel was a foolish decision. The prophet Yirmiyahu was certainly more practical and wise than the Judean king of his day. You know, we would have thought that the, the prophet would have invoked the power of faith over practicality and the reality of the situation, but it wasn't the case. Oh, how much is the same? The Jewish people were just simply unable to imagine that Hashem would allow his own holy house to be destroyed. But the prophet warned them they were mistaken in that belief that disaster would follow. You know, that disaster, he said the disaster will absolutely follow this folly. So one of the most bitter lessons of this period on the calendar from that time and forever, this week ahead, is that practicality and wisdom are necessary in order to ensure Jewish national survival. Faith in God? Yeah, it's everything in Jewish life. But that faith is not a whim. It must be founded on the realities of the world and the circumstances that surround us. You know, Rabbi Ephraim, Goldberg, uh, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, he happens to be my brother-in-law's Rebbe, and I think he's in Boca Raton. Um, he brings out, he reminds us something that on April 11th, the entry, April 11th, 1944, young Anne Frank, she wrote in her diary, and Anna Frank means no introduction, certainly not to those who listen to this station, and what does this young girl from not even a religious family? She questions in her wisdom. I quote, who has made us Jews different from all other people? Who has allowed us to suffer so terribly until now? It is God who has made us as we are, but it will be God too who will raise us up again. Who knows? It might even be our religion from which the world and all peoples learn good. And for that reason, and that reason alone, do we now suffer. We can never become just Netherlanders or just English or representatives of any other country for that matter. We will always remain Jews. And Frank. She had, as we say, she had a finger on the pulse. The Talmud asks, from where did Mount Sinai derive its name? The Talmud suggests that Mount Sinai comes from the Hebrew word Sina, 
which means hatred, because there are those that hate Jews. The non-Jewish hatred of Jews descended upon that mountain when the Jewish people received the Torah there. The Midrash teaches us that the three prophets use the Hebrew term Echa. Oh, how? Moshe asks, Echa, how can I bear alone your troubles, your burden, your strife? In the Haftorah, we read this Shabbos. It's going to say, Echa, how has a faithful city become like a prostitute? And lastly, Jeremiah begins that book of Lamentations, Echa, by saying, Echa, how is it that Jerusalem is sitting in solitude? The city that was filled with people has become like a widow. Echa, we ask, how is it that anti-Semitism persists? Why must they still rise up against us in every generation? On Tisha B'Av, we will sit on the floor again. We will wonder aloud, Echa, how can it be that Jews are still worried about their lives, that we still cringe in fear? Echa, how could it be that today, with all the pre all the progress that humanity has made, all the striving and all the changes that Jews have brought to the world, medicine, world peace, innovation. How can it be today that more than a quarter of the world is still holding anti-Semitic views? It is not enough to cry out, Oh, Echa, how? How? There is only one answer, and that is an answer we must say together. Ayika, where am I? My name is Andrea Simintov, and I wish you Shabbat Shalom. Umivorach from Jerusalem. <laughs>